The Teach Middle East podcast is brought to you by Schoolfinder.ae. Schoolfinder.ae is a comprehensive schools directory serving the United Arab Emirates. Is your school a member? Go to Schoolfinder.ae to find out more. Now, enjoy this episode. everyone and welcome to the Teach Middle East podcast. My name is Lisa Grace and today I have with me Matthew Savage and we're going to be talking about data but not in the way you know. We're going to be talking about data in a different way. We're going to be looking at how data can be used to truly make students lives better. And Matthew is a former school leader, so he understands all that we have to grapple with as school leaders when it comes on to data. But he has taken data from a different perspective, and we're going to learn more about his trademarked Mona Lisa effect, but we're also going to learn what we can do as school leaders to ensure that we're using the data that we collect on each student effectively. You are listening to the Teach Middle East podcast, connecting, developing, and empowering educators. Hi, Matthew, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me on. It is my pleasure to have you. I appreciate your writing. You write for Teach Middle East magazine and have written several articles, some of which I will link in the show notes for people to go and read and become familiar with your work. And you also come out here to the Middle East quite a lot and you do consultancy with schools and help them to navigate this whole world of data. So, of course, we're going to link all of your info in the show notes so people can connect with you. But for those who don't know you, who is Matthew Savage? I think that's probably the most complicated question you could ask today. Um, <laughs> far as your audiences will be interested, Matthew Savage is a former school leader, both internationally and in the UK, who loves data so much that when he left principalship in 2020, he decided to go full-time in helping schools to understand what a beautiful and transformative thing data can be, as opposed to it being this scary accountability stick with which we all have been scared, we are going to be beaten, you know? So that's who I am. And I'm working with thousands of educators, hundreds of schools, over 60 countries over the last two or three years, just to really effect a paradigm shift, I think, in terms of the why of data and then also the how, and as a result, the outcomes that we get from it. Yeah. And so you said you were in the UK and then you were abroad. Where did your career take you? It was a career of two halves, really. So I left the UK in 2010, having been the deputy head of a wonderful inner city comprehensive in the centre of London. And then I went into headship. But my headships were international. I was the head of secondary at an IB school in Vienna, and also then in an IB and GCC school in Brunei Dar es Salaam on Borneo. Then I was a deputy head of school in Thailand. And finally, for the last four years of my career, I was principal of an award-winning international school in the Middle East, in Jordan, in fact. So that's where my career took me and my dog, in fact, and my family as we traveled the world in search of, of the next opportunity to do something cool with a school. 
Nice. I like that to do something cool with a school. I think that's what a lot of us, we leave our home and we, you know, trot around the globe and try to do. And and some of us, you know, more successfully than others. So you've successfully done it in several schools and now you're back in the beautiful United Kingdom. I won't reveal your exact location, but it is a beautiful location, quite remote and quite lovely. And now you're working with schools on data. So what is it that we need to know about data? Why is it so important? So I'm going to go really, really fundamental here. Why is data important in schools? I think before we even answer that, I think we need to uh, kind of get ahead around why it can go so wrong and, and mm. why teachers and educators are so uh, anxious around data and so often, I think, scared of, yeah. uh, of, of data. You know, I think for too long, data has been toxic. It's been weaponized as something of which we should be scared, you know, the the nasty side of accountability so that, you know, we can be worried, what will the data tell about us as a teacher? Right. And I I think there are a lot of negative data habits out there, you know, just to, to describe a few. Every September, I see almost every school I know broadcast from the rooftops their students' exam results, you know, which students got the over 40 in the IB or straight A stars, which students are going off to this Ivy League school or that Russell Group school. And I think that's one of the problems of data is that we use data to perpetuate um, an elitism. Even if we yeah. do it unintentionally, we, we do it to kind of perpetuate that performativity. You've got to get the best grades all the time. That's one problem with it. We also, again, inadvertently, we use it to compare to compare this year group with the previous year group, to compare this school with this school, to compare this child with this child. And I don't know if any good has ever come from those sorts of comparisons. We we use it to label students, whether we mean it or not, in how we group students. And, and in our mind, the story we have told of that child, without necessarily finding out the full story, we're labelling kids all the time, I think. And I also think lots of the conversations that historically and typically have taken place around data have been blaming conversations. A senior leader talking with a head of faculty about the results that year and blaming, seeing who should we blame? Is it you? Is it one of the teachers? And then that's passed down, right? So teachers, when they're talking with students about data, oftentimes it's why are you not getting this grade? So I think there are so many bad habits that schools have developed over the years through no fault of their own and with no ill intent that the whole thing is in need of a paradigm shift. Right. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why I enjoy working with schools so much is because we can take the essence of data and um, make it work for for good rather than for ill. I think that's what I'm I'm trying to achieve. Why does it matter? Okay, kids are complicated, right? I mean, adults are. I certainly am. And I don't think I've got a monopoly on on complexity. (laughs) Um, But kids are really complicated. And I propose that they wear multiple masks the whole time. That's what we do evolutionarily. If there are any weaknesses in us, we want to hide them up because otherwise out on the prairie or whatever else, we'd be eaten up. Yeah, So we concoct and construct these manifold masks that we wear as kids to make it look like we're okay, to make it look like we fit in, to make it look like we're succeeding. And those are the masks that the teachers see. But if as a teacher, I truly want to get to the heart of who that kid is, to see the world through their eyes, then I've got to look beneath those masks, right? And that, for me, is where the data comes in because the data doesn't tell us anything at all, in fact, but it plants flags. It says, you might want to dig a bit here. You might want to look a bit more closely here. You might want to attempt to approach this from that direction and maybe you'll find out things that you didn't 
know before. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. And I like what you said when you said that what has happened is over the years, data has been used as the stick to really beat the backs of school leaders who then turn around and beat the backs of teachers and and on goes this really bad cycle. And I wonder, though, if what you're saying in terms of looking at data from a new perspective can really work from a school level or does it need policy change? Because here's the thing, when inspectors come into school, they're coming and they're asking you for your data, which means it's coming from, you know, upon uh, on high from the policymakers and the powers that be. So really, can schools start to look at their data differently before the powers that be offset or the inspectors start to look at it differently? Because where does it begin, this change? Well, I think if we wait for change at policymaking level, then we're going to wait a long time and we're going to have disadvantaged an awful lot of kids in the meantime. So I think there is a game to be played in the meantime in terms of our overlords, you know. I think there are hoops we will need to jump through. I think there is room for some education, even of inspectors, in terms of what the data actually says rather than what it looks like on the surface. But I think we are going to have to jump through some hoops. Um, But I think we can do that with relative ease as a sort of side issue whilst using the data for actually what really matters. And I also think there's almost not an either or in terms of better results. I think the mission of the Mona Lisa effect, we'll talk about later, is that every child be able to be seen, be known, and as a result, belong. Well, if children truly belong, they will also thrive. If they thrive, they will also do better academically, you know? There's not an either or here. And so the game we're playing to keep whatever higher power happy will be much, much easier if we're using data for good rather than ill because the the attainment will look after itself, you know? Yeah. I'm going to come to the Mona Lisa effect because I'm really, really intrigued by even just the name and how you came up with that. But I want to go back to thinking about my time in schools and my experience is a lot of schools, they hold data and they only ever look at that data when maybe inspections are about to happen or something big is going to happen. When should schools be looking at data and how should that take place in schools? All the time. Mm. The best schools with whom I work have the data conversation rooted in everyday pedagogy and practice. So in their pupil progress meetings, and they're talking about individual kids, they're talking about them in relation to that child's data story. Because only by building that data conversation into staff room dialogue, into that that teaching and learning dialogue within teams, only by doing that, do we make it less toxic? Do we make it uh, less weaponized? Do we make it uh, native and and habitual and, and nothing of which to be scared? So yes, you're right. Too often, data is this summative tool that we pull out when we're obliged to do so. But for me, data only really makes any difference when it's used formatively and when it's used formatively in an optimistic and positive way, just always to find new opportunities for kids to thrive more than they used to. And in that sense, it needs to be all the time, Lisa, it really, really does. Yeah. Do you think that the problem lies with how the data is presented? And Because if I'm a teacher and you present me with a bunch of spreadsheets and pie charts and bar graphs. Sometimes that can be quite intimidating. Sometimes just don't know what to do with it. Do you think that's a part of the problem? 
I think I'd say the problem is perhaps split into two. One is absolutely how we present it and what we expect you as a class teacher then to do with it. And the visualization of data is becoming more and more sophisticated. And I'm exploring with some of my schools, even trying to share a child's data story without any numbers whatsoever. So I think there are really creative ways that we can, and it's our obligation, you know, as a a leader in a school with a portfolio for data, I've got to make it accessible. I've got to make it visual. And I've got to make it tell a story because that's the way that teachers are able then to use that information. Because you're right, I might love spreadsheets because I'm a bit sad like that. But most teachers do not want to be bombarded with a million spreadsheets and charts and graphs because there's a disconnect then. What do I do with that? How do I make that into this transformative reality of which you speak? So I think one, visualization is is really, really important. It's essential in order to break down those those barriers and to translate it into a language that everyone understands. But I think the other problem is the why. If you ask teachers uh, as a profession, what is the why of data? Still too many of them would see that why as that sort of harsh blaming accountability. Whereas for me, the biggest why for me, I'm a passionate advocate and ally for DEIJ, and I've just joined ECIS's DEIJ team. And for me, I think everything in schools is or should be about really celebrating that diversity and pursuing as the ultimate goal, equity, inclusion and justice, right? And for me, data is the great leveler. If we use data really powerfully and really wisely and really well, then we can identify the inequity and the injustice where it exists, and then we can actually try to address it. Now, I think I would find it much harder to locate large groups of teachers who would disagree with that why. So for me, a lot of it is is about the why. And if you reflect on it, there's so much inequity in schools beyond that experience by individual protected characteristics. But beyond that, if one were to do a really honest and interrogative self-audit of a school in terms of success equity. So which children in your school get to experience visible success on a regular basis? Is it all of your students? Mm. Is it only some of your students? And if it's only some, which are those students? Which of the students in your school get to experience positive well-being on a regular basis? Is it all or is it only some? And so for me, data being the great leveler, identifying that injustice and that inequity and then actually doing something about it, that's the biggest reason to use data for me. Yeah, I do agree with you. And I also wondered when you were speaking about the use of data and looking at the why, a lot of schools, the students themselves don't even get an opportunity to interact with their own data because it's never presented to them in child friendly way. So they don't get to see how their data is progressing, like how they are progressing really throughout their school careers, apart from these summative reports that, you know, they get at the um, end of maybe a term or a year that are sent to parents and the kids aren't really that involved in it, if I'm honest. What's your experience on this? I think too many kids are under such pressure whether it's perceived or actual depends on the child, but such pressure to perform. And by perform, we mean get certain grades. The success in their minds is correlated so tightly with academic grades Mm. that the relationship between a child and their data 
is contaminated from the get-go. And with lots of the schools I work with, we start by looking at the notion of success. What does success look like to you as the leadership team? What does success look like through the eyes of your kids and your parents and your board or your owners, etc.? Does everybody see success as a similar thing? Or does everybody see it as a different thing? Therefore, kids are going to get such mixed messages. We might talk to them about growth mindset and how inclusive we want the school to be. But if we also allow that old inherited paradigm of performativity to be loud the entire time, then the kids are getting very mixed messages. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to look really closely at that. The mixed messages we give to students about what success actually is. And I also, in an ideal world, Every bit of data I have, say you're a child in my school, Lisa, every bit of data I have on you should belong to you, right? Yes. Because if, if the example, I had to have a blood test in the hospital recently. If I'd gone for the results and they'd said to me, well, I'm not giving you them, I'd have been outraged because it's my blood. So in an ideal world, the child should have access to all of their data. But problem is lots of the best data that I use is very sensitive and delicate and complicated to understand and could, in the wrong hands at the wrong time, be used to establish and perpetuate a fixed mindset, to actually perpetuate that blame. And you can't share data with a child without sharing with the parents. And then you're giving this really complicated data that's almost being used beyond your control. And my worry there is that until we get to a point where we've educated parents and students about what the data does and doesn't mean, that it's a plastic, fluid, messy thing, not some fixed delineator of who a child will always be, then I think we have to be more cautious. Another example on the medical front I'd give is when I was teaching abroad, obviously I had private healthcare abroad, and therefore whenever you had any sort of scan, you'd be given the full report with all of the different test results, all of the different language. And whenever I read these, I'd get so worried because I'd see what one word in there seemed to be a little bit more negative. Then I'll Google that word. And then I find (laughs) that word is also used in reports about this horrible illness, you know, because actually I'm not a medic. So actually someone just telling me that I'm fine (laughs) would have been enough. And Mm. I think that's where I think we need to be careful. Yes, in theory, all of the data in that report from my scan belongs to me. But actually, I haven't been through 10 years of medical training, so Perhaps I don't need to have all of it. And I think there's a balance to be struck there. Uh, I think we can talk to kids about the the spirit of data without necessarily always talking about the actual data itself. Because I think most kids will understand that sometimes things are for kind of internal expert use only. Yeah. And like you said, you could give them their data story but in a version that they can digest, in a version that they can use. And I love the use of the word story because it is really a story about them and and what they're doing and how they're performing, which brings me to the Mona Lisa effect. What is it and what does it do in terms of the outlook that schools should have on data? Okay, well, remind me about the story um, and motif, because I'd like to return to that as well and share a couple of things. The Mendelisa effect is really a philosophy, I suppose. And as I said before, it's rooted now in my mission, which is that every child be seen. And that's talking about real visibility for everything that they are, for all of the complex kind of bundle of identities that make up them. Mm-hmm. So every child must be seen. Every child must be known, again, for who they are beneath the masks. And if we can do those two things, then they can belong. So there is a well-being imperative to the Mona Lisa effect that is, in fact, at its core, that we keep well-being first. Quite literally, this came from a visit to the Louvre in 1997, my honeymoon with my 
wonderful wife. And we went to see Lisa Gerardini on her wall um, in the Dunon wing of the Louvre. Um, and I wanted to test out whether indeed her eyes were as magic as I'd heard tell and whether they did actually look at you wherever you were in that room. And absolutely they did. And it struck me at a point when I was just starting out in my own teaching career that that magic ability to be able to look at everyone simultaneously, that's what we should be doing in school. That's what we should be achieving in school. And that's what kids should be experiencing in school, a learning and well-being experience, which is looking directly at them for who they are. So that's in, in kind of simple terms what lay behind the Mona Lisa effect. And then data is at, at its core as this vehicle through which to see them, through which to know them and through which to enable them to belong. I suppose a, a reasonably snappy definition of what the Mona Lisa effect is. But I suppose if you're a school working with me, you subscribe to the importance of data, you subscribe to the essence of well-being being at its core, and you subscribe to that pursuit of DEIJ um, as the ultimate goal. In terms of stories, you mentioned stories, and I think stories are absolutely the way that we should look at data. In fact, when I work with schools, I use lots of actual stories. When I was a primary kid, a lot of my friends would read these fighting fantasy role-play books, which shows how old I am, but where you, you, you could choose in these books, you know, you'd, you'd be in front of a dragon and it would say, if you want to fight the dragon, go to page 64. If you want to run away from the dragon, go to page 72. And in, in this way, actually, it's a bit like Paulo Freire, you know, it's redistributing this, this power, kind of dissolving the oppression by putting the power back into the hands of the individual child so they ultimately can reshape their story. The story that each child has now is in the past. Our job as teachers is to afford them agency over where their story is now and to change the direction that goes. So I think stories are absolutely at the centre of it all. And a, a student should be able to understand their data story without needing to see their data. Right. And as leaders, it's our job to share the data story with teachers in such a way that kind of is a call to arms that, that enables them to then help children to change the ending if they need to. Yeah. So let's get a little bit practical because I'm thinking of schools and I'm thinking, OK, Matthew, you've gone in. The school is looking at data the completely wrong way. You know, the senior team already have a negative perception of data and they've passed that down. But your job is to go in, you're going to implement the Mona Lisa effect, you're going to help them to look at data in a more transformative way and helping individual students. Where do you begin? What do you do first? What do you do second? What do you do after that? Well, firstly, I would never seek to implement the Mona Lisa effect because that's not my job. I do not have all the answers. I do not have all the wisdom uh, and I do not have all the mm. insights. My job when I go into a school is to inspire and to win over the hearts and minds behind the why. So that's the first thing, okay? Right. You're right. Just winning over the why is not going to achieve anything in itself, but it's an essential prerequisite. So the first thing I'll do with the school is I'll win over hearts and minds to the why of data. Then I will work with the school to populate what I call a triangle of data. So I think too often we look at data in isolation. Mm. We don't actually look at data alongside other data points. But at its simplest, we have a triangle of data. We have data on a child's aptitude and abilities. We have data on a child's attainment, achievement and progress. And we have data on a child's attitudes and well-being. So the first thing I would do is work with the school as to how they populate that triangle and what tools they would use to provide that data. 
And then any of those can be broken down. So the, the attitudes and well-being vertex on that triangle, I then uh, work with what I call the well-being wheel of data. So there's five different types of well-being data that you can gather. So I suppose that after winning over the why, we do a kind of a trawl of what is the data that is available now? What of that data do you not need and not want? So let's get rid of it. Uh, what new data do you need? And let's then have a strategic plan of what data your school is going to use to populate that triangle and enable the kid to be seen, known and belong. Then once you've got the data in place, it's a question of the so what now what of the classroom. And this is where I draw on the wisdom of Jim Ellis, who's the head of innovation at ECIS. And he talked to me back in November last year about what he calls spikes and curb cuts. So spikes, I find such a really powerful way to make this data work in schools. Spikes is based on this idea of hostile design in architecture. There are numerous examples around the world of, of architecture specifically being designed to inhibit and harm and oppress a particular group from hostile benches, preventing homeless or rough sleepers being able to lie on them, mm. to spikes on branches, preventing birds from roosting so they don't make a mess of the pavement below, to spikes under flyovers to stop uh, skateboarders or rough sleepers from using that space. You know, hostile spikes. I take it then as a metaphor for what actually exists in abundance in our schools. Not intentional. We didn't put these spikes there. But those spikes exist. And the great thing about the data is that we can start to identify particular groups of students who have enough things in common to be able to look at them as a larger group. And then to think, all right, if I was a student in that group, or if I was just this one student with their data story, what's going to spike me? What are the things that exist within every classroom, with every corridor, within the policy and practice of the whole school, what are the things that are going to spike me? And could I actually remove those spikes without harm to anybody? And also this notion of the curb cut, this really simple way of rendering uh, an urban environment accessible to somebody who had a disability. It's a broad cut that actually benefits everybody. Every pavement user then is able to get from pavements to road, right? So once we've identified spikes, the things that inhibit particular groups of students or particular students, then we need to look for the curb cuts that are going to make things better for everybody. i got a quick question for you, though. From your experience, what typically are some of those spikes that schools need to look out for? Oh, we're, we're full of these spikes. We really, really are. So uh, examples, for instance, that I share with schools instantly is lots of secondary schools provide compulsory homework. I don't understand how you could say anything was compulsory when it's not being completed in your classroom. And even then, and I've a parent of two kids who are now 22 and 20, but I spent most of those last 20 years trying to get them to do things compulsorily at home and I never managed. <laughs> but that aside, what about the kids whose parents aren't as wealthy as their peers' parents? And they're actually having to work every hour God sends to get them to go to that expensive fee-paying school. So when the child goes home, they have to do the chores. They have to look after the siblings. They share a room with siblings as well. They literally have no peace and quiet and space to do that work. Or what about kids maybe in your region who go back to an extended kind of almost tribal family where that's more important than anything else? You know, all of the different relatives live in that particular block. And when you go home, School's irrelevant because you're supposed to be interacting with and connecting with your tribe. What about the kids who go home and they're sent off five or six different clubs every night or for tutorials? What about the, the Korean kids who go to Hagwon for four hours after school every day? You know, all these kids are going to struggle to do any homework. And yet we as schools have as a policy, because 
yeah, practice, consolidation, flipped learning, etc., that we're going to have homework. So it's a benign policy that ends up with spikes for each of those individual groups mm. of students. And I think that's what we need to do is really reflect on our policy and, and aspects thereof that could very easily spike individual students. And the, as for the curb cuts, really early on in my career, I worked in a school attached to a hearing impaired unit. And so we knew we would have two or three kids with a hearing impairment in each of our classes at any time. So we were given some basic training in terms of how to ensure that what we said stood the best chance of being understood by the kids in front of us. We were told a few simple things. Make sure that you're always looking at the child that you're talking to. Number two, make sure that you always enunciate such that they stand um, a reasonable chance of reading your lips. And number three, always gesture and use facial expression to mirror the tone or mood of your words such that everything is communicating the same thing together. Now, those three strategies I've tried to use throughout the last 25 years with children and adults, hearing impairment or none. And you know what? They benefit everybody. Yeah. So I think this is the approach I encourage schools to take to data. Once you've got all the data and once you know and see each of your kids, then do a really kind of rigorous audit of the spikes in your school and then think about the curb cuts that you could then implement. And then it's smart, intelligent design that doesn't mean I've now got to go off and prepare 25 different lessons every time I teach this class because all those 25 kids are very different. And I'm working with Jen's Founders School in Dubai at the moment. And one of the things they're doing on the back of my relationship with them is they're doing this spike hunting. They've got their students involved as well. Let's find the spikes. And I find that quite an exciting way that teachers tend to buy in as much as students. Yeah. And so when they find spikes, for example, like you've described with that compulsory homework, do they just immediately get rid of those spikes? Or is it that maybe they have to remove the spikes for some students? Because it might be a spike for some and not for others. How do they handle that? Well, it's not about accommodation. It's about adaptation. Okay. So we need to adapt our environment, our climate, our culture, our policy, rather than simply try and accommodate kids who perhaps don't fit into what we regard to be the norm. But you're right, something that's a spike for one child may actually be beneficial to another. So it's not simply a a question of, you know, just recklessly ripping out all the spikes that exist without thinking about the consequences thereof. It's a question of really reflecting upon our long-standing policy and practice and seeing where could we adapt things often in quite nuanced ways, that still ensure that those who benefit from that particular area continue to do so, but to do our best to ensure that those who are spiked by it are no longer spiked. And it's not a simple process, you know, and it varies from school to school, but I absolutely think that it's it's the road down which we should be going. And, you know, when I look at the data, we find different kind of profiles of kids. You may find a child who's got a much stronger nonverbal attitude than their verbal aptitude is at the moment because of the stage they're out of their English language acquisition. As a result, they're underachieving in all of their subjects, which is making them lose uh, any motivation to work and is starting to affect their mental health. Yeah, so we've got all of that information. Now, if I'm that child, what are the things that are going to spike me the worst right now? Because surely the priority for us as as educators is to try and reduce the impact of those spikes on that particular kid. So it's a constant process. 
Yeah, it definitely is. It definitely is. I just looked at my time and go, oh my gosh, I could like keep talking to you and keep talking to you. <laughs> but I really want to talk about this last topic with you is how do we measure well-being? So I know you talked about the triangulation of data, but I also know that a lot of schools struggle in collating data around well-being, looking at the well-being of children, because how do you collate something that is fairly dynamic and changes from day to day. How do you collate that? How do you then interpret that? And how do you then utilize that to uproot spikes and create curb cuts? These are some really great expressions that I'm going to incorporate in my own kind of thoughts and processes when I think of data. But back to my question, well-being, how do we measure it and how do we utilize that data? What are your thoughts? And we're leaping beyond the why. Let's assume the why is there. Let's assume we all recognise we've got to measure well-being, right? Yeah, definitely. Partly partly because we have to and partly because especially now we have to, yeah? It's becoming a specialism of mine and oftentimes schools are asking for input on that above all other things. So Mm -hmm. I'm speaking at the Outstanding Schools Europe conference. It's sort of an assessment afternoon on day one of that. Dylan Williams talking about formative assessment and then I'm talking about measuring well-being. I'm also leading training with ECIS later this academic year on measuring well-being. So there's a real hunger for this, you know, Mm. and this is where my well-being wheel comes in. So I think, firstly, we need observational data, because sometimes simply by looking at another student, either peer to peer or adult to student, only by looking do we figure out that something might be wrong there. So observational data. And there's ways of then turning that into a record, which is then shared with someone actually to act upon. And there's some amazing tools that we can use to do that. But observational data is one. Earlier environments are really good at this because some of them use the Leuven scales of well-being and involvement, which is a rubric referenced mechanism for observing children's well-being and their involvement score of one to five. And you've got that data whenever you want. But even with students older up and higher up the school, there's some really interesting ways we can measure through observation. Secondly, we need to measure through check-in. We need to find a way for every child every day to be able to check in in a way that is safe for them so that we know whether they're feeling bad or not. As simple as that. Now, there's lots of apps out there. I'm familiar with called Upstrive. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Upstrive. Yeah, If if people are listening to this, then they could go check out Upstrive. I think they're onto something with that app. I think they absolutely are. And I was speaking to Sven from Upstrive earlier this week, actually. And and I think there's so many exciting things that could be done with Upstrive and Mona Lisa effect kind of coming together. Upstrive not only enables you to log that observational data, it also has that check-in data so that I, as a a leadership um, level, I could uh, go into the the system and I could see the well-being of my entire school at any given point of any given day, you know, and I think it's magic. But there's other base, more rudimentary ways to do check-in data. An earliest kid having mood cups on the wall, you know, happy, sad, excited, worried. And then at the start of each day, they put their lollipop stick in each one, you know. So there's check-in data. Then there's survey data. The GL's pass survey is the one predominantly used throughout your region, but there are also other ones out there from the UK, from Australia, et cetera. Then we have counselling data. And I don't mean the sacrosanct confidential conversation. I mean, where are the hotspots? Where are the issues that are being talked about more than any other? You know, which year groups seem to be more vulnerable at this time of year? That's all data. And the fifth spoke, the final one, is everything else. And I suppose this might be a good point with which to draw this interview to a close, is everything is well-being data. Literally everything. If I've got attendance and punctuality data, 
that's telling me something about well-being. Yeah. If I've got a report grades being sent home, then that's telling me something about well-being. So if we see every single piece of data as well-being data, then I think we're going down the right road. Brilliant. I think that's such a great way to end the podcast. Thank you, Matthew. You're welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure, Lisa. It's definitely been my pleasure to have you on the Teach Middle East podcast. And please, guys, go to the podcast notes, check out Matthew's contact details. If you're a school and you're listening to this podcast and you'd like to work closer with Matthew in transforming how data is handled in your school, do get in touch with him. I will put all his links in the show notes and I do think you will be better for it. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Teach Middle East podcast. Visit our website, teachmiddleeast.com and follow us on social media. The links are in the show notes.